0: This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, MD Advantage, Yukon Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC, News Talk 1080, and WT.
1: Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up to date medical information and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to welcome you to this program on November 16th, 2019. Today's show is being taped, so it's been taped in advance. It's a new program, but we've had several conflicts on schedule. Actually, as you're listening to this, um, I'm probably freezing on the sideline at the United States Coast Guard Academy as they play their last game against Merchant Marine. They move the time up to a noon start um, because it is their big game of the year. It's on ESPN. Uh, so I agreed to go to that. And. My studio guest is Dr. Brian Wong. He is a specialist in multiple sclerosis, and he's going to be joining us later in the program, and he agreed to come in and tape this. So we're not going to take live questions on today's program, but you can email me your questions at info at alessimd.com. Last week, I was away in Las Vegas with the Professional Bull Riders Tour. Uh, It's a great group to work with. So many really just wonderful people and a great championship. And I always learn more and more about Western sports. In fact, this week I'm giving grand rounds at Hartford Hospital on Western sports and neurology and really looking at these types of sports and the mechanisms of injury that are involved. And it's a lot of the work that I've been doing at the University of Connecticut uh, on this topic. I also did an interview that was pretty interesting this week for a show called HBO Real Sports with Brian Gumbel. And they came up here to interview me regarding dehydration in sports, and particularly combat sports. Let me explain why it's it's of interest to everybody. There's a culture in the combat sports field where they do a thing called cutting weight to make weight. And really, it's a carryover primarily from the world of wrestling more than anything. So what a competitor does is they train at a certain weight, say, for example, 160 pounds. But they're going to fight another opponent at 145 pounds. So within a short period of time, they'll have to cut 15 pounds. So they'll train at 160, which is their normal weight, and then several days ahead, cut 15 pounds now it's gotten to the extreme where some people are cutting that 15 pounds in a day now losing 15 pounds in a short period of time takes a real effort it takes an effort and a toll on your body what we've been seeing in sports now is that they've been doing damage to their kidneys people who do this um, and it has brain injury implications The spinal fluid that surrounds the brain is diminished, and in fact there are cognitive changes in the brain where they become somewhat confused, make bad decisions. We're seeing more deaths in combat sports, and I think that's what really has promoted this. And it's really a problem when you have a late fill-in. So suddenly somebody gets sick and they call some poor guy up who's sitting in a gym waiting for a fight, kind of like Rocky, and say, hey, can you fill in in short notice, but you got to lose 20 pounds in the next few days. um, They'll always say yes, because they need the money. The irony, and I hate to use the word, but the stupidity of this, here's the problem. So they think they're going to cut weight from 160 to 145. Then within 24 hours, load up on fluid, get back to 160. So now they're going to go in the ring at 160 and fight a guy who's 145. And That's not what happens. The other guy's doing the same thing. So your opponent is sitting around there at 160. He cuts down to 145. And now you're both in there at 160. So you've put in your, the human body through tremendous stress to, for no advantage. And if anything, you've created a disadvantage for yourself. And we go into it in a lot more detail in the interview uh, with on Real Sports. I think that's going to air the end of January. You know, we've talked a little bit on this program about a single-payer system. We're hearing all about Medicare for all and single-payer system. I, I've had a personal issue this week. Um, I have insurance with Harvard Pilgrim. And... It's a, a PPO plan. It's a really good plan. And we needed some medication for a member of my family. It, it, it's a medication that we've had right along. Um, it's an injectable a couple of times a year. And believe it or not, we couldn't get the medication in time. We've been trying for a month to get this medication that was previously covered. And we found out after a month of phone calls between the physician um, the manufacturer of the medication, right? Because they all have these drug discount cards now. And, and actually, we're going to talk about that with our, my guest today because that's a big issue in multiple sclerosis. And then you have the insurance company. So what I found out was without notifying myself, my broker, or any member of my family or my employer, they changed the plan and didn't tell us. So here's my argument. If we're going to go to a single-payer system, let's go to a single set of rules. I'm not saying you can't change the rules. You can, but you got to tell everybody. And maybe the same rules regarding what drugs are going to be paid for, what's not going to be paid for, has to be the same across the board and treat everybody fairly. So probably another advantage to getting to a single-payer system. doesn't have to be Medicare for all, but all I'm saying is, Let's get to a system where it's a single set of rules for everybody. This day in medicine, Johann Gottschalk Wallerius. This is an interesting doctor. He's a medical doctor. He's a Swedish chemist and mineralogist. And he really looked at the chemistry of medicine. He got his MD degree from Uppsala University, a famous university in Sweden, in 1735. And he became what's been described as the father of agricultural chemistry why this is interesting to us is so much of medicine is based on agriculture farming and being around animals in fact many foreign medical schools are affiliated very closely with veterinary schools because we know there's a lot of transmission and reliance on animals and knowing animal diseases as well as what the, how those may carry over to humans is so important. So I thought this was so interesting um, that we thought about um, uh, Dr. Walerius uh, today, and today would mark his uh, birthday. Everybody needs to know, first two flu deaths in Connecticut have already been reported. It's early in the season. Both of those deaths were people over the age of 65. Why? Because we're more vulnerable when we're young. So infants and people over the age of 65 have to be very mindful of the flu. Get the flu shot. If you're over 65, it's a special dose. It's like a double dose of the flu vaccine. Get it. You could still get it now and really, hopefully, avoid having the flu. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest today, Dr. Brian Wong, who is a medical doctor and a specialist in multiple sclerosis? He works for Hartford Healthcare. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. As I said earlier in the program, today's show is being taped, and my guest today is Dr. Brian Wong. Dr. Wong is a neurologist specializing in demyelinating diseases and multiple sclerosis. He is with Hartford HealthCare and practices in the Southington office. Brian, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Um, Let's talk a little bit. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where'd you go to school? Where'd you go to undergraduate? How'd you end up here?
2: Well, I'm I'm originally from just outside of Boston and grew up in Massachusetts uh, and uh, eventually graduated high school and went to undergraduate in Rochester, New York at the University of Rochester. I started out there thinking I wanted to do electrical engineering and, you know, after starting it I found that that wasn't something I was passionate about and eventually found my way to biology where I uh, completed my pre-medical training and eventually went to medical school in in Roch uh, excuse me um in at Georgetown University in uh, Washington D.C. So
1: th- Let's talk about it. Do you think your love of electrical electri- electricity and electrical engineering drew you to the brain in some way?
2: Well, I, I think engineering is a, a, a fine field. It was just not something I was passionate about. And and uh, in the the area of medicine obviously has uh, uh, a special uh, interest of, of mine in the in the sense that um, you get to deal with people in the medical field.
1: So let's talk about it a little bit. Where did you do your residency, fellowship, and explain to everybody what that means. You know, there's residency and then fellowship. We always hear the word fellowship. So if you could explain that a little bit to the listeners.
2: So the process of getting your medical training is first includes going to college and then going to medical school but after medical school you have to complete what's known as uh, residency which is uh, a training period where you have completed your medical school so are a medical doctor uh, but need special training in the area of your expertise so um, in my, my uh, expertise as a neurologist I did training in neurology at the at the Brown University Rhode Island Hospital in, in Providence Rhode Island
1: what drew you to multiple sclerosis and demyelinating diseases? And maybe broadly give our listeners some idea of what we're talking about.
2: So first of all, multiple sclerosis is an autoimmune condition, which is where the immune system is overactive and unfortunately talks, attacks the the person's own body. And in the case of multiple sclerosis, attacks the brain and the spinal cord in particular. Um, I was drawn to the field particularly because I enjoyed um, learning about the condition and found that in this particular specialty, you got to establish um, a rapport with people and got to follow people for many years, which I found attractive.
1: So let's talk about multiple sclerosis. Are we finding... So it's interesting that we hear more about it now. And is it because we're recognizing it more? Is it because of the onset of the use of the MRI that we're seeing more of it? Or are we seeing more of it because of changes in our environment?
2: I think it's a combination of a couple of things. One, we are aware of the symptoms that patients with multiple sclerosis experience a little bit more uh, commonly um, than we were in the past. Um, In addition, we do have tools like MRI imaging, which help identify uh, abnormalities on the imaging that we wouldn't be able to detect in the past due to uh, basically improvements in, in, in the technology. So there was actually a study that came out earlier this year that estimated that the number of patients in the United States with multiple sclerosis was actually a million, which is a, a, a large increase from the estimation of 400,000 that was previously thought.
1: Okay, so we're going to go back to a little bit of history. So when I started out, okay, MS was this terrible disease, right? And it was interesting because I, I used to tell patients it's not all that bad. About a third of my patients are severely disabled, about a third maybe partially disabled. And there's another third out there who are living normally with no deficit, What I've found over the years now is that third that were incapacitated has become much smaller. Um, Is that because of recognizing it at an earlier stage or because of treatment?
2: Well, even without treatment, there will be certain people with multiple sclerosis who fortunately don't have an aggressive course and would do fantastic even without medications. However, that's probably the minority of people with the condition um, nowadays, there are a lot of medications which are, one, more powerful um, than we've had in the past. And by starting these medications early on in a patient's course, we're finding that patients tend to do much better long-term than they would have been able to in years past when we didn't have these tools.
1: Do you still think it's a third, a third, and a third, or do you think it's changed in, in your estimation now? Because that was those are old, gross figures that from the 1980s. What, what would you say now in terms of... A patient population of people with MS?
2: I think it's hard to give an exact number but you know always what our goal is to have as close to 100 percent of our patients do well if possible Um, and while that not may not always be the case I, I think a majority of patients can do quite well with the right medication for them.
1: Okay I think that's that's fair I have to say that and when I say incapacitated I'm talking about people who need to use an assistive device so either a wheelchair or a walker, I'm seeing fewer and fewer um, from that standpoint.
2: I think that's absolutely true. I think the expectation now is not that once someone is diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, that they will re- in de- definitely end up in a, a wheelchair, for instance, um, but rather that that probably is the minority of cases, hopefully.
1: We're chatting today with my guest, uh, Dr. Brian Wong. He is part of the Iyer Neuroscience Institute at Hartford HealthCare, and we're talking about multiple sclerosis. We're going to take a short break now, and then we're going to be back. I've got a lot of questions because many of the people who have a legitimate diagnosis of multiple sclerosis are performing in sports at the highest level. I mean running long distances and playing professional sports. We want to know what's the secret there. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And as I mentioned at the onset of today's show, we, we talked a little bit that today's show is being taped, but it's a new show um, with new information for you. My guest is Dr. Brian Wong, who is a... Specialist in multiple sclerosis. He is with the Iron Neuroscience Institute at Hartford HealthCare. His office is in Southington. And Brian, so before the break, we talked a little bit about how people are doing better with multiple sclerosis. And um, as you know, in my practice, I treat athletes. And it's interesting because so many people with multiple sclerosis are relatively young and relatively active. We recently had a guest on our program, uh, Marissa Bowasa, who is a patient who came to us at our sports Institute and actually was a runner and has gotten back to running by wearing a cooling vest. She has uh, braces. She has drop foot. So she has orthotics that spring back and she uses poles to keep her balance. And um, she just did, uh, I think it was a half marathon at the Hartford half marathon. So getting back to that, first of all, do we still, is the demographic still primarily young people for multiple sclerosis?
2: It, well, multiple sclerosis is a lifelong condition. When people first experience symptoms, they tend to be young, uh, usually in their 20s and 30s.
1: What are the early symptoms? What, when people are thinking multiple sclerosis, what are the early symptoms that, make, that should make somebody think, I have to get to a doctor?
2: I think one of the challenges of diagnosing someone with multiple sclerosis is that a lot of the symptoms are very common. For instance, things like pain, fatigue uh, are, are symptoms that a lot of us experience on a day-to-day basis but are more common in patients with multiple sclerosis. The things that people should worry about which may key a doctor into thinking about the condition are episodes where a person has sudden onset of numbness or weakness or tingling in a part of their body, which doesn't last just a few minutes, but really lasts days or even weeks. Um, Alternatively, some people may experience trouble with their vision, for instance, double vision or pain and blurry vision in a single eye, which again, typically lasts days to weeks. And those are what we often refer to as relapses or flares in, in MS.
1: One of the things that I noticed that has changed that when someone has an initial symptom, say loss of vision in one eye and it clears up, we don't necessarily always begin treating that. You know, it's it's kind of a warning sign, but not everything needs to be treated. Is that the way this is going? I think
2: while well, that is true, that not all those, all. Patients who experience episodes of visual loss, uh, which is caused by inflammation of the optic nerve, called optic neuritis, need long-term treatment. But that really depends on what's causing the inflammation. If it is from a condition like multiple sclerosis, and that can be confirmed through additional testing, the goal is usually to start people on a medication to prevent them from having additional episodes and and long-term preventing disability. Um, I think the trend is actually... Starting patients on medications earlier rather than later, um, because we know that the people who start medication sooner tend to do better in the long run.
1: So, let's talk about it because one of the things we often see is we will see changes on an MRI. Right, MRIs have gotten better and better and better, and and I'm convinced a lot of patients who had multiple sclerosis before we had these diagnostic tools probably took it to their grave, and we never diagnosed them. But now that we pick it up on MRI, somebody may not have ever had symptoms. Um, Do you still treat them?
2: It really depends, I think, on the person and where they are in their course of of MS. Uh, Typically for uh, younger patients who's who's newly diagnosed in their 20s and 30s, um, it's pretty routine to treat those patients. People with medications however if as you said we didn't pick uh, the symptoms up earlier and we find that a patient say in their 60s or 70s actually had a diagnosis throughout their life in those cases the the treatment goals are a little bit different in in that often the risks and side effects of the medication sometimes may outweigh the benefit at that stage
1: Let's get back to the athletes, so how is it possible the people with multiple sclerosis are out running half marathons playing in the nFL playing in the n h l um, how is that i mean how is that how does that happen?
2: well again, everyone with m s has a different course and and maybe that some of those people are the lucky ones that have a benign course of m s but with the new medications that we have out there, we're finding that people are doing much better for longer. And uh, we also know that people who are physically active and engage in regular physical activity tend to do better in terms of long-term outcomes in MS as well. So it may be a little bit of a chicken and an egg there.
1: Well, let's talk a little bit about medication because in 1993, I guess, is when we started using beta seron. And, uh, you know, you're much younger than me, but this was revolutionary for us, um, to start using interferon at that point in time. Uh, granted it was every other day for an injection, uh, that really revolutionized the treatment of multiple sclerosis. Prior to that, we were treating people with high dose steroids. We were treating people with cytoxin and, and immunotherapies that were devastating, really, uh, left them weak, um, How have things evolved since the beta-seron use? And talk a little bit about that in terms of, you know, oral medication, injectable medication, uh, what we're doing now. So people may get some understanding of these treatments.
2: So while the old medications are still used today and they are very effective, um, there are a lot of new options out there. Depending on how you count, there are about 18 medications specifically for the treatment of multiple sclerosis. That many? And uh, they vary in the route of administration. For instance, some are given uh, through a shot that you would give yourself um, at home. Um, others are given by a pill that you would take either once a day or a couple times a day. And thirdly, there are... Medications which are given through an IV infusion, uh, where you would get this infusion at a facility.
1: So, some of the IV infusion, right? Natalizumab was became infamous when people started developing um, leukodystrophy, um, but it, it's back being used again. Um, is it something you still use to a limited extent?
2: Absolutely. Um, well, natalizumab was a medication that after release um, into regular use was, was... it the
1: first monoclonal antibody? I didn't want to interrupt, but was that the first monoclonal antibody we used?
2: That was the first monoclonal antibody specifically for the use in, in MS, and and it is has been proven to be a very effective medication. Um, while it's not without its downsides, as you said, they, we did discover after its release that it was associated with a, a very serious brain infection, something called PML. Um, But we also have learned since the uh, medicine came out that there are certain risk factors associated with that uh, side effect. And so through careful monitoring with with, uh, lab work and and making sure that patients are followed with regular MRIs, the risk of experiencing that outcome is relatively low.
1: Do we still – so let's talk a little bit about the options because now we have ocrelizumab right? And that's what every six months, it's an infusion every six months, makes it very convenient for folks.
2: Yeah, ocrelizumab is also another very powerful medication, um, which is given through an, uh, an IV at a facility. And it is very convenient for patients to receive the medication every six months, um, where other therapies, for instance, nanolizumab is once every month approximately. Um, for the patient that can't follow up every month, the, the every six-month administration is is certainly an attractive um, benefit of that one.
1: One of the big side effects when we were starting to use interferon was this flu-like feeling. I mean, if patients felt like they had the flu every other day. Uh, and then, you know, we got down to using it um, three times a week and, and, and spacing it out. What are the big, the common side effects? Have we gotten rid of that that feeling from patients where they're feeling they're kind of under the weather after they get a treatment?
2: Unfortunately, with the interferon medications, those flu-like symptoms are just a a natural side effect of of that particular medication. Um, So while not every patient experiences flu-like symptoms, um, there will always be people who are on those medications that will experience those symptoms. And, And unfortunately for those people that might not be the right medication for them. And so uh, the good news is that nowadays there are other options, so uh, the person isn't stuck with that as the only option and, and doesn't have to tolerate the flu-like symptoms um, because there are other medications which don't have that side effect.
1: Do you still use a lot of interferon?
2: I think they're being used uh, quite a bit less nowadays just because there are other medications um, administered through um injections that you give yourself, which don't have the flu-like symptoms. And there are other medications, oral and IV, which are probably considered a little bit stronger than the interferons. So um, while they are still used, I think they're kind of in the phase-out period at this point.
1: Oral medications, are they just as effective as the injectables? Have you found the Gelenias, the Fingolamides, the
2: are they... I think it's a, a little bit of a, uh, a debated topic, but as far as strength goes, in general, the oral medications are thought to be a bit stronger than the subcutaneous and intermuscular self-injectables that you would give yourself at home. So if, for instance, uh, if someone failed a self-injectable medication like the interferons, they sometimes are switched to what's considered a stronger medication, and sometimes that is an oral medication.
1: We're chatting with my guest today, Dr. Brian Wong, who's a specialist in multiple sclerosis at the Iron Neuroscience Institute at Hartford HealthCare. If you wish to reach Dr. Wong, the phone number there is 860-628-3910. And uh, if you know of someone with uh, multiple sclerosis or suspected multiple sclerosis, um, he would be a great resource at his clinic, um, really, as someone who's knowledgeable On all the current treatments for multiple sclerosis. We're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back in our final segment where I'm going to talk with Dr. Wong about what's the future of treatment in multiple sclerosis. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And in this final segment, we're with my guest, Dr. Brian Wong. Dr. Wong is a neurologist at, uh, in Southington uh, at the Iron Neuroscience Institute for Hartford Healthcare, and he's a specialist in multiple sclerosis. Uh, Brian, before the break, we talked a little bit about treatment, and, and really, I guess that's been the biggest evolution during my career in dealing with multiple sclerosis. Are uh, the tremendous advantages? to therapy now but so we've made big big inroads in terms of diagnosis right because we're not tapping everybody we used to that was the only way we could do it was doing spinal taps now we've got sophisticated MRI for diagnosis we've got some good treatments what's next what's the future of treating people with multiple sclerosis or diagnosing diagnosing multiple sclerosis
2: well there are a few areas where there have been improvements over the years. One is, as I had mentioned, there are a lot of new medications and even in the current year, 2019, there have been three new medications for multiple sclerosis that have come onto the market. Um, separately, uh, you know, as far as diagnosis goes, we do have more powerful magnets nowadays for our MRI machines and that allows us to see uh, new lesions and abnormalities that we weren't able to pick up on less powerful imaging. Um, I think that will continue to improve as time goes on. We'll have uh, more ability to see uh, lesions earlier for patients and maybe maybe able to make a diagnosis earlier than not, which could benefit patients from earlier treatment. Um, In addition there are people who are looking at biomarkers in multiple sclerosis. For instance, we would like to be able to get blood work for a patient to see if they are having a relapse or an episode without having to get an MRI in, in, in certain cases. And, and that, those are things that potentially in the near future we'll be able to do.
1: Are studies going on now with, with potential biomarkers for MS.?
2: there are um, there still are in the preliminary stages and so nothing ready for regular use um, but in you know select uh, clinical trials those markers are being studied
1: outside of medication what kind of things do you recommend for your patients are there special diets patients are always asking me you know is there a special diet I need to be on for a concussion or things like that for patients with ms are Are there any special dietary recommendations that you have for them?
2: That's a hotly debated topic. But what I can say as far as lifestyle things, we do know that people who have a low vitamin D are more likely to develop multiple sclerosis. And and making sure that you're not vitamin D deficient is important. In addition, people who are smokers, uh, tobacco, um, they are more likely to develop the condition and if they have the condition, may experience progression of the disease. And then as far as diet goes, as far as that goes, you may get a different response from different providers. But in general, what I tell my patients is to maintain a healthy diet. And and what that means, well, um, a a good diet to follow perhaps is something like the Mediterranean diet where you're eating more fruits and vegetables and, and more fishes than than red meats, but there's no agreed-upon diet specifically for MS.
1: Obviously, you want to avoid obesity in MS because you're carrying more weight. What about exercise? Are there any particular exercise? Do you recommend yoga or aerobic exercise for people with MS? I mean, in in the past, we used to say, well, just sit around, but what do you recommend for your patients?
2: I think regular exercise has been shown to be beneficial for patients with multiple sclerosis the the trouble sometimes is that people with MS do experience a a a worsening of their symptoms temporarily when they do overheat and so um, for instance you're the person you had mentioned with the cooling vest if if a a person is engaging in very um, intense cardiovascular exercise sometimes that overheating limits their ability to perform at a high level so Whatever a patient can tolerate specifically, that it varies from person to person, um, whether that be um, uh, cardiovascular exercise or strength training, um, whatever someone enjoys, I, I, I would encourage.
1: Brian, I want to thank you very much for spending time with us today uh, and especially uh, for all you do for our patients with uh, multiple sclerosis over at the IR Neuroscience Institute. And Hartford Healthcare. Again, if you want to reach Dr. Wong, it's 860 628 3910. Brian, thanks for spending time with us today. Um, A uh, special sign off uh, today. Uh, This month really marks, we're beginning our 13th year on Healthy Rounds. And I I just think it's time, and every year I like to thank everybody who helped us uh, get started back in 2007. Uh, You know, early on, before I got here, there were people like uh, Lee Elsie um, at uh, WXLM at the time and Sports Talk with Bill and Mike, um, who really got me involved in radio. And then uh, this show got picked up uh, by WTIC. And and really, two people really served as an impetus for this program. It was uh, Gene Sheehan. Um, who many people know, a a good friend of Ray Dunaway. So it was Ray and Gene who really championed doing this show, along with Steve Salhaney, who continues to be our manager here. Early on, um, Amy Ashton was in charge of sales and marketing, for Healthy Rounds and did a phenomenal job um, to work with sponsors and uh, partners along the way. Ryan Cosgrove uh, used to be our guy on the board who has moved on. Uh, And I just think it's time since we're going into our 13th year to really thank those people and remember them. And we remember all of our sponsors and partners and especially St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. St. Francis has been with us right from the beginning with the Connecticut Joint Replacement Institute. Um, and now we've been able to really bridge the gap uh, here in the Hartford area. The University of Connecticut is a sponsor of our program from their Department of Orthopedics. A- and I understand the Iron Neuroscience Institute at Hartford HealthCare uh, will be joining uh, our list of partners here. Um, along with um, our many other partners who have worked along uh, with us. Uh, We now have MD Advantage, uh, a great uh, medical malpractice insurance company. So with that, with this sign-off, I want to thank all the people who have been a big part of putting together Healthy Rounds and keeping us on the air for these 13 years. And many thanks to our studio producer today, Mike Olko. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds and does a phenomenal job of keeping things going around here. Next up on WTIC is going to be Garden Talk with Len. Don't forget to download the Healthy Rounds podcast. All of our shows are podcasted. It's free. You download it on iTunes, and you can get any of our shows from that library. Until next week, please remember to help save lives by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor. You can do that today by going to registerme.org. Until next week, please stay healthy.
0: This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, MD Advantage, UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC, News Talk 1080, and WTIC.com.